Well, hey, happy new year to all of you, and I hope you are enjoying the wonderful winter white beginning uh, to this new year. Uh, we're jumping into a new study in the book of Philippians, so you're going to want to have your Bibles open to Philippians 1, but also Acts chapter 16, because we're going to spend the majority of our time today in Acts 16, which is the backdrop to the book of Philippians. So if I started off with a question, does anyone care how you live your life? You might answer that with both a yes and a no because of this strange cultural moment in time that we are living in these days. You see, we are being told on one side of the equation, literally inundated with voices that are like, no one can tell you how to live your life. You do you, I'll do me. Just live according to any worldview you want. There is no objective sense of right or wrong. And yet we also know that intentionally, the Judeo-Christian values and traditions upon which our nation are founded were being pushed aside more and more these days, and to call people to the ethics of Scripture is not only politically incorrect, but increasingly it means that you're going to be pushed to the very margins of society and seen as some sort of a weird, aberrant-type person. I think of a couple of illustrations. Uh, it's shocking that Trinity Western University loses in the courts their bid to start a, uh, a law department. Uh, basically told, we don't trust you to train lawyers for Canada because of your sexual ethic. Or this week's Bill C-4 that came into law just this week that bans conversion therapy, making it a criminal act in Canada but leaves so many questions for parents, for pastors, uh, for school counselors and teachers. Uh, will our freedom of speech be muzzled? How broadly will this law be interpreted? And will we, in the, in the days that are coming, face criminal charges for teaching and upholding our perspective of the biblical worldview, specifically around sexuality? So you see, anything goes, except the conservative view of life, a biblical view of life. Now, you know the truth is that culture continues to have and has always had a set of expected and accepted norms. They just change from time to time. And in so many ways, we, in so many ways rather, we willingly submit to these. Uh, this week, we saw it when that party plane headed to Mexico uh, comes under hot condemnation. And why? Because they had broken the expected norms that our culture has adopted. Uh, parents tell their kids, when you walk out the doors of the house, you represent our family. Teachers and coaches will try to instill a sense of school pride and team spirit uh, in the students and the athletes. Uh, professional sports teams, it, it, it's funny that they insist on a dress code when their teams are out in public. It's sort of like whatever you do in the privacy of your own life is your business, but when you are representing the team, you're going to wear a suit and tie. It's funny, if you've picked up on any sports broadcast these days, you'll recognize that sportscasters these days are dressed better than most bankers are these days. Uh, one of my favorite movies and a favorite scene from that movie, Remember the Titans, 
the story of Coach Herman Boone, a true story of school integration back in the 70s. And as he's trying to pull together this ragtag bunch of high school players and they're headed off to training camp, he gives this impassioned speech to them. I'll just read it to you. We leave for camp, Gettysburg College, August 15th at 7.29 a.m. If you show up at 7.30, you will not be playing football this season. You'll be watching. You will wear a jacket and a tie. If you don't have one, buy one. Can't afford one? Borrow one from your old man. Don't have an old man? Then find a drunk and trade for his, because I guarantee you there ain't a bum on the street that looks as raggedy and ridiculous as what I'm looking at. This is not a democracy. This is a dictatorship. I'm the law. If you survive camp, you will be on the team. If you survive. It's a funny clip. But we live with this paradox of how you live your life doesn't matter on one hand. And yet we continue to respect and admire people with the courage to live out their convictions. Dave Ramsey is a name that probably many of you know. He's well known in Christian financial planning circles. Uh, a strong evangelical who teaches biblical principles of how we earn and save and grow and give our money, uh, the, what God has entrusted us to. But what you may not know is that if you are going to work for the Ramsey Solutions uh, business, you sign a moral covenant when you become an employee. Uh, in his book, Entree Leadership, he says this, You can delegate important, complicated tasks to someone to the degree you trust their integrity. That is why I spend zero time trying to redeem a team member who steals. I just fire them instantly. Once they steal, I can't trust them with anything. That is why I will instantly fire a team member who has an extramarital affair. If their spouse can't trust them, there's no way I can. Now, you read something like that and you're like, in the day and age we live in, can a company do this? Can they get away with rules like this, even legally? And apparently, if you do business in the state of Tennessee, and if you tell people up front when they're hired, then yes, you can. And if you Google Ramsey, you will see that over the years, he has fired 8 or 10 or 12 people based on these very issues. So this weekend, we're jumping into a new series in the book of Philippians. And if you wanted the theme in one phrase, there would be no better phrase than this, the pursuit of a worthy life. And if you want it in one verse, you could choose Philippians 1.27 as the theme. Let your life be worthy of the gospel you received. Or to put it more bluntly, Paul is basically saying to us, let me tell you how to live your life. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this book, you will know that it is a book filled with encouragement and joy. Uh, the word joy appears in various forms 16 times in this book. But it is also a book of spiritual challenge and specifically the call to live out the faith that we've embraced. Uh, to, Paul uses this exact phrase uh, in other letters. Uh, to the Thessalonians, he said, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you 
to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The very same phrase. God does the calling, now you do the living. Specifically, live a worthy life. Walk in a manner worthy. And this question is what we're going to study, and it will be pressing home again and again and again. What is our part in living out the faith? What is our part in living out the faith? Now, if you've been around Northview any length of time, you will have heard us talk about the doctrines of grace. That the work of God in our lives is just that. It is the work of God, and it is all by grace. We sing a lot of songs that remind us that it is grace and grace alone in which we stand. Uh, we often refer to the five solas of the Reformation period in church history. The, the solas, which the Latin word simply means alone or only, that it is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the, the scriptures alone, and unto the glory of God alone by which we live. And so make no mistake that the only way that you are going to be able to live out a faithful and worthy Christian life is by the enabling grace of God. Full stop. And yet, and yet, we can't read the New Testament and avoid the many texts that press us into active pursuit of the Spirit's work in our lives, that we have a part to play in living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of grace that we've been called into. So Paul's greatest concern for these people and for us is that they persevered in their faith, that they would keep up the spiritual pursuit that the Spirit of God has started in them, that God began a good work in your life. Now, as chapter 127 says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And so this little letter is going to poke us on that question. Does the practice of my faith match the profession of my faith? Is your life worthy of the gospel? Okay, let's dive in. The book opens, and it's just going to be our intro this week, with this little phrase, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And we'll just stop right there. When I remember you. So that phrase takes Paul back in his memory banks to Acts 16 and his second missionary journey. The first time that he met these people, the first time he saw the gospel's effects in that community, at Philippi. And that's where this starts our series. And in the time that we've got together today, we're going to go back to Acts 16, where it began, and look at three gospel implications from that story. The reach of the gospel, the breadth of the gospel, and finally, the challenge and the promise of the gospel. The reach of the gospel, the breadth of the gospel, and then the challenge and the promise, like two sides of one coin, of the gospel. So Acts 16 gives us a story. So you want to be in that section of scripture right now. We're not going to take time to read it because it's a long chunk, but have your Bibles open as we walk through it. 
When we consider the reach of the gospel, what I'm referring to is simply this, the burden, the drive, the fire, the motivation to get the message of the gospel out. Now, the book of Acts records the birth and the growth of the early church. Jesus had given his disciples a great commission, basically saying, I've done my part. Now I'm leaving it with you. I've opened the way up for salvation. Now your part is to get the message out. Go and make disciples. And so Paul, always traveling with a team, made it his ambition to reach the unreached communities or people groups of the world. He was a classic church planter, an entrepreneur, a fire starter, a, a catalyst. And in Acts 16, we catch up with him on the second missionary journey. Now, I know a bunch of you have maps in the back of your Bibles, and so I printed one off here just to, just to point out this journey. This is the second journey from leaving Jerusalem, Acts 15, and going up to visit the churches that he had been at in his first missionary journey. And then this happens in the first few verses. His plans get interrupted by the Spirit of God. He revisits those churches, and then in chapter 16, verses 6 to 10, there's this fascinating text where his mission gets interrupted. You see, Paul is a strategist, and he had his itinerary planned out in his mind. We're going to revisit those churches from the first journey, and then we're going to hang a left, and we're going to go west, and he wanted to go over to the coastlands, more than likely, he wanted to go to the city of Ephesus because it was the key city in that region. And he knew that if he could reach Ephesus, he could have an impact in the entire region. But something happens that the Spirit blocks his way. We don't know what, we don't know how, but Paul knew that those doors were closed. And so he heads north, thinking, I'll go up to Bithynia, which is up on the northern shores of present-day Turkey. And yet the Spirit again blocks his path. And so Paul ends up in the northwest corner of Asia Minor and he has a dream. He has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come across the waters, come and help us. And so Paul and his team jump on a boat and three days later they arrive in Philippi and the ministry begins. Now this is Paul's first church plant on European soil. And it's the first church in a majority Gentile community. And the rest of the chapter tells us about the first three converts. And we'll come back to that. Now, there's a lot we could say. But the first question I want to put in front of you is simply this. Are we still driven along by a passion and a motivation to get the gospel out? Is that what drives us personally and as a church? Are our eyes and our ears open to the promptings of the Spirit of God, the call of God to take the message to people where the gospel is not known? Now, you will know this, that on the macro level, as a church family, that we want to be a church-planting church, uh, that we have a bunch of people in training to be pastors and planters, hoping to revitalize and replant and start new churches. And, and we have a specific eye on communities and parts of our country, parts of our province, where specifically the church has struggled, where there are the tiniest number of Christians and where the gospel is needed. Back in the fall, we had a, a guest with us, Stephen Bray from St. John's, Newfoundland, and he shared with us how the island of Newfoundland is less than 1% evangelical. 
It's something like 0.5% in gospel-centered churches. Uh, how their first church plant in, in a community called Kilbride, uh, the last church in that community closed its doors 138 years ago. Imagine this, in Canada. Closer to home, uh, we've got some churches in our own province. Harrison Gospel Chapel down the road closed a couple years ago. And Central Church in Chilliwack now has a planter to replant that congregation and is inviting us to help them. Dawson Creek Church closed back four or five years ago. And now North Peace Church in Fort St. John has a planter trained here at Northview, David and Janelle Hildebrand, who are going to go to replant this church. And yet, right here in our own backyard, we could also talk about this large Punjabi community that we live amongst for over a hundred years, and yet seeing so little impact of the gospel in that community and saying, Lord, what are you going to do with these, our neighbors? Uh, this year, we're partnering with Multiply uh, upstairs in our office uh, who are bringing a church planter from northern India who's had great success at establishing churches among Punjabi people in India, bringing them here to the Fraser Valley to say, God, would you begin to open up this community to the gospel? But who will go? Who will pray? Who will send? Who will God give a burden to? And as we talk about things like this, I'm reminded of men and women from history. And one that comes to mind is C.T. Studd, Charles Taylor Studd, uh, from the late 1800s in England. He came from a wealthy, upper-class family. He went to school at Eton College and Cambridge University, but he was radically converted in his early 20s. He was a great athlete. He was considered to be one of the best cricket players in all of in, uh, England, but he gave that up and recruited six buddies to leave it all behind and to go with him to China with the gospel. They became known as the Cambridge Seven. And their story shook up conservative circles in Edwardian England. How could these seven men do this? What would possess these seven young men with such great futures ahead of them to leave it all behind? C.T. Studd said this. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Perhaps his most famous quote is this one that if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Who is God calling? Simply put, do you, do we, have a heart to see the Great Commission fulfilled in our lifetime? And yes, we, we should ask what ministries we're supporting and praying for and concerned about, but... But more personally, do I have a heart for people who are far from God? Who are we praying for? Who are we asking God for? And as we start a new year, as we head into 2022, I wanted to get a little card into, into each one of your hands. And uh, as you came into the services this weekend, uh, the ushers will be handing these out to each person. And for those of you watching at home, you can go online and you can download this and you can print it at home. But I would love to put one of these cards in everybody's hands and ask you to just take a little time and thought and prayer to think through. Now, you can do with this whatever you want. 
But what I hope that you will do with this is that you will join me in 2022 asking God to burden you specifically for at least five people. And they might be five people that you know and love uh, who are far from God, maybe prodigals, people who've walked away from the church, people who are in your family who need to know Jesus. It, it could be whoever God puts on your heart, but commit yourself to pray for them five minutes a day, five names, five days of the week. Keep it in your Bible or your journal where you'll be reminded. Would you join me in 2022 asking God, would you give us a heart for the people that are around us on our doorstep? See, the pursuit of a worthy life and a life worthy of the gospel forces us to think about the reach of the gospel. But the second thing that we can't avoid seeing in this story, and maybe the most important thing, is the breadth of the gospel. As you follow along in Acts 16, verses 11 to 13, Paul arrives in Philippi and he hears about a prayer meeting on the edge of town. Now, it wasn't a Jewish community, so there was no Jewish synagogue, but there's this prayer meeting happening out by the river. And so Paul goes out and he meets with these people. And over the next several days or weeks, we see three very different people come to faith in Jesus. There's an upper class businesswoman. There's a working class prison guard. And there's a demon possessed slave girl, the most unlikely core group for a new church. Uh, almost 30 years ago, I, I heard Carl George say these words and later written in a book, and they've stuck with me over the years, that before you enter the mission field represented by your church or the mission field you live in, God went first. Before you arrived there, he had already sown the prayers of mothers the gospel preaching of others, the witness of Christians before you have all been used by God to prepare a harvest. This means that people are ready to respond to Christ, waiting for whichever representative of Jesus will come to them in a loving, prayerful way. You see, Philippi was a totally unreached city. But God had indeed gone ahead of Paul. He had prepared three very different people to receive the gospel and to become the nucleus for this new church. The first is a woman named Lydia. And if you look at that paragraph, verse 11 to 15, you see her story. In verse 14, she's identified as a seller of purple goods. A woman from Thyatira, which is over in Asia Minor on the other side of the Aegean Sea. Now, Thyatira was well known for its purple dye. It, it came from a plant called the madder plant, the, the rose madder or the common madder. And the root of that plant, these long foot-long tubers, were bright red or bright purple. And it, it was a common dye that was used right up into the 19th century. It was highly valued because the purple uh, was a color of royalty. And so the reds and the crimsons and the purple hues were particularly popular. Uh, in short, Lydia was, a, we might call her a fashionista. She was a designer and a seller of all things beautiful. She was a businesswoman. And apparently, she was quite successful because she was a businesswoman from Thyatira and yet living here in Philippi, and we'll see later in the text, she obviously had a big home because she takes Paul and his companions into the home to stay there. 
She's an entrepreneur, a mover, and a shaker on both sides of the Aegean Sea. But she was also a spiritually seeking woman. Somewhere along the journey of her life, her heart had been stirred with a desire for more than just earthly fashion. And she started to seek God. And here she is at a prayer meeting. <clears throat> Paul shows up and he talks about Jesus. And verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart. The second convert was the polar opposite to Lydia. Polar opposite on the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, verse 16 to 18, as we were going to the place of prayer, we're met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying, these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. We see this slave girl who is possessed with a spirit that, that is literally called Python, a, a god in Greek mythology. Uh, we don't know the details of how she found herself enslaved. Was she sold into slavery? Was she captured in battle? It, it really doesn't matter. All we see is that her owners had also oppressed her and a, de and a demon possessed her. They didn't care about her. They only cared about the money that she could make them. And so they're ticked off as Paul casts this demon out of her. She comes to herself, she comes to faith, and their business venture comes to an end, and they have Paul and his companions thrown in prison. And then verse 25 to 35, we meet the third unlikely convert. We might call him blue-collar Joe Jailer, a prison guard who's given the task of watching over the night shift at the local jail. And more than likely, he's a retired Roman soldier. That's often the men who were looking after the prisons. Today, we would call him Joe Sixpack, just your ordinary working class guy. He showed up to do his work. He did what he was told. This time, he happens to be covering the night shift. But God has plans to reach into his life and shake up his world literally to shake up his world as an earthquake rocks that jail in the middle of the night. He finds himself sleeping and he awakens, thinking that the prisoners have escaped. He's going to kill himself and Paul cries out, don't do it. We're all here. And the question then comes in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? He is more than just a guard. He is now a spiritual seeker. F.F. Bruce in his commentary on Acts says this, three individuals are singled out by Luke among those whose lives were influenced by the good for the gospel at Philippi. They differ so much from one another that he might be thought to have selected them deliberately in order to show how the saving power of the name of Jesus was shown in the most diverse types of men and women. Now, you might be saying to yourself, so what? Why is any of this important? Well, these were the people who first received Paul's letter, the study that we're going to press into in these next couple months. When I remember you, when I think back to the book of Acts, to chapter 16, the call to pursue a worthy life is written to this very diverse congregation. 
And so as we read through the book, we've got to read it through the lens of Lydia and through the jailer and through the slave girl. The socioeconomic diversity of a healthy church should provide a warm welcome for all. Uh, the entrepreneur sitting next to the unemployed, the PhD who's rubbing shoulders with the high school dropout. The church should be where the social distinctions that matter so much in the outside world are leveled out as we come together in fellowship around the foot of the cross. And so, of course, it raises some questions for us. Do we have a heart that is as broad as the gospel? when we look at the world around us? Do we believe that God can and still does call wealthy people, working class people, poor people? It's probably 15, maybe even 20 years ago, Carolyn and I got to know a new couple that showed up at our church. If looks matter for anything, they appeared to be a really successful couple. They were late 40s, maybe early 50s. They were dressed much better than most people in our congregation. They looked confident. They were what you might call a class act. And so early on, they invited us for dinner and we got to hear their story and it was so fascinating. Now, one of the favorite questions I have when getting to know someone new is, how did you come to faith in Christ? And their story was fascinating in that neither of them came from a religious background. They found themselves very successful from the world's point of view. They had made their money in banking and real estate and the markets and money management. He was already retired in his early 50s and she was still working, not because she needed to, but because she enjoyed it. And they told the story of how on a vacation, literally laying on a tropical beach, both of them had this thought begin to roll through their mind, there must be more to life than this. How blessed our life is. The money, the home, the cars, my spouse, and yet there must be more. And as they got back to their room that night, they began to share with one another the thoughts going through their mind on the beach, and they were shocked that both of them at the same time had had such an impression in their heart, and they made a determination that when they got home to Canada that they would find a local church. And so they did that. And they just so happened to have walked through the doors of a church where the gospel was clearly proclaimed, and they placed their faith and trust in Christ. And, and shortly thereafter, just a, a few months later, they moved to our church in Kelowna. And I had the privilege of baptizing them as they declared publicly their faith in Jesus Christ. And the question is, do we still believe that miracles like this can happen? That those people that we're praying for who have everything that the world says they need and yet they don't have Jesus. Because there are thousands of people just like them here in Abbotsford. Do we believe God can reach them? What about the other end of the spectrum? What about that oppressed woman who in today's world we might call the working poor? eking out a living, two or three jobs in the service industry, maybe emotionally disturbed, life's been hard, maybe have been abused or certainly overlooked, basically feeling invisible to the world around them. Can and does God still reach into broken lives to bring freedom? And then, of course, there's Blue Collar Joe. And this, honestly, is Abbotsford's poster child. Beer drinking, 
Monster truck driving, Prince George dinner jacket wearing Joe. Slugging it away in the trades. Not really thinking about anything spiritual, but when God shakes up his world, when the walls come crashing down, he cries out, who can fix this? And it might take his wife walking out on him or a buddy dying too young. But God will shake his world and God will get a hold of him. You see, there's a lot for us to ponder. Do our social circles and our spiritual fellowship circles need to expand? The breadth of the gospel compels us to lift our eyes to the ordinary people all around us, knowing that God is able to make a way for every socioeconomic sphere. And so it takes us to where we're going to end today and dive into over the next coming weeks as we look at the promise and the challenge of the gospel, the two sides of the same coin, the promise and the challenge. It's the paradox that I referred to a bit ago that we know on one hand that the work of God in our lives is precisely that. It is the work of God. One of the best love promises from Philippians is chapter 1 verse 6. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God began the work and he will finish the work. It is an amazing gospel promise. And yet, and yet as we read through this book, we come across phrase after phrase, similar to chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. And so it's the age-old paradox in the debate that we have when we come to the Scriptures. God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. And how do these two fit together? Which is it? Is it God's work or our work? And when we listen to Paul, it, it almost sounds an awful lot like he's giving the team pep rally and, and saying to us, if you're going to be on the team, then you're going to be at the bus at 729. And if you show up at 730, you're not going to be playing. You're going to be watching. And if you're going to come to training camp, you're going to wear a suit. To put it in theological terms that some of you might be familiar with, it's the question of persevering faith. The Bible is so incredibly clear that we not only need to make a profession of faith, but that we need to practice that faith, and most importantly, we need to persevere in that faith, and that's where we're headed over the next 12 weeks, in pursuit of a worthy life, a life worthy of the gospel. But as we close, let me give you one final word of encouragement, that what we are called to is actually impossible. And you might say, well, how is that in any way, shape, or form encouraging? Well, if you walk away from this study of Philippians over the next couple months hearing that you need to work harder, try harder, do more, pray more, serve more, give more, to prove that you are living a worthy life, it will crush you under the weight of those demands. Because left to ourselves, none of us can live up to the expectations laid out in the Word. And that's where the promise side of this equation must come into play. 
That's where the doctrines of grace have to be repeated again and again over our life. In another context, dealing with the exact same topic, Paul asks the obvious question, who is sufficient for these things? Who can possibly live like this? Who can carry out the work of the Spirit? It is such a crushing weight to live under. And then he gives this word of comfort. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Who is sufficient for this? None of us are, but thanks be to God that in Christ He is sufficient. At your touch, my sleeping heart awakened. On my darkened heart, the light of Christ has shone. Called into a kingdom that cannot be shaken, heaven's citizen by grace and grace alone. So I'll stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I'll run the race by grace and grace alone. I'll slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I'll reach the end by grace and grace alone. So that's where we're headed. The pursuit of a worthy life. Carried along by the Spirit of God, confident that He is always working, daily surrendering to the gentle promptings and proddings of the Spirit as He bit by bit molds us more into the likeness of the Spirit of Jesus. And I hope and pray that the Spirit of God will use this short little book to challenge us and encourage us in the pursuit of a worthy life. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for the men and women who are listening to this message right now. As we enter into a new year, I think we desperately need the encouragement of your spirit to just keep at it in these days that we live in. It's winter time, and in the part of the world we live in, it's gray and it's gloomy. Uh, despite the pandemic that we're living in, we know that you are also still in control of our lives, and yet we live under the weight of it. And so, Father, we need the encouragement of your spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would embed into us this passion for the reach of the gospel, the breadth of the gospel, and that we will also see the promise and the challenge of the gospel, that you have called us to respond to your loving call of grace in our lives by living lives worthy of the gospel. And so that may be our joy in these coming weeks to press into what does it mean for us as a Northview community and as individual believers across this great city to live lives worthy of the gospel. We'll give that to you for your glory, for our joy, in the name of Jesus. Amen.